Mais Good evening. Do not attempt to adjust your device. There is nothing wrong. We have taken control as to bring you this special message. We will return it to you as soon as you are grooving. Welcome to station TIR, better known as Truth and Rhythm, with a very special giveaway. Sponsored by Modern Retro Radio at modernretrofm.com, you can win a free copy of Everything's on the One, the first guide of funk. Simply email info at funkandstuff.net with funk me in the subject line. Tell us what you love about Truth and Rhythm and include your mailing information. That's it, and your free book will be on its way. As a bonus, name the first guest ever to appear on Truth and Rhythm, and your book will be signed by the author. This is a limited time offer while supplies last. Thanks to Modern Ritual Radio and all of the TIR supporters. Now kick back, dig, while we do it to your eardrums. And me, I'm known as Scott Wolfine, alias Dr. GX, and my motto is, keep on keep vibrating, on vibrating to, the to the rhythm of the, of the, the wine. wine. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon to pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend. Tell family. Also, get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts. Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership bassist producer Mark Brown, who as Brown Mark was a core member of Prince's band The Revolution during their immense 1980s popularity. He also led his own protege band called Maserati, released several albums under his own name, and worked with many other well-known artists. Following Prince's death in 2016, he reunited to perform with the other original Revolution members and recently published his autobiography, titled My Life in the Purple Kingdom. 
There it is right there. Hey, Mark, so glad to have you on the show. How hey, are thank you? Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm glad to be here. Outstanding. Yeah. And, and where, where is here today? Where are you? I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Fall's coming in. Beautiful weather. So, yeah. I'm, you know, good day. Trapped in the house for nine months, but, you know, it's, right. it's nice weather outside. Yeah, I'm enjoying it too. I'm not too far away. I'm near uh, Charlotte, so. Oh, okay, okay. Same kind of weather then, pretty yeah. much. Yeah, but you're a little colder. Yeah, but it's been beautiful. I'm really enjoying it. So, uh, as I mentioned, of course, huge fan, and those you know who followed the show know what a huge uh, fan I am right from the get go. And um, you know, I'm especially a fan of of funk. So it's really a treat to have the bass player the bass man of the revolution on who was responsible for that bottom, you know? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, you know, reading your book, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, and, you know, what really struck me about it, among other things, is just how many common threads I felt personally, because I, we're about the same age. And even though I grew up in Los Angeles, so many like threads in it just i could relate to you know music wise and just you know the things that i also saw with like racial things and just so much of it rang true yeah 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 that uh it, a significant part of my life i when i started writing this book i i could i don't think i could explain my story um well unless i went back and showed people uh where we come from you know a lot of people, they know bits and pieces about Prince, the revolution, the time, the jets, I mean, you name it, all the Andre Simone, but they don't know a lot about our background. So I, I said to myself, I really want to go back to my childhood and show people how growing up in that environment, you know, was uh, the key factor in how we formed the type of sound that we developed. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I think is such a credit to the Minneapolis sound. It's just all those diverse influences that came in and just, you know, combined for such, you know, fantastic music unlike anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Um, so what I'd like to do is, is talk about the book, of course, but also talk a little bit about your own music career aside from that that's not so much in the book necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was talking about common threads, Mark. I was especially thinking about uh, reading the book when you talked about being a kid and being influenced by things like the Jackson 5 and even Three Dog Night. And I remember growing up with that same music, you know, and how much it influenced me, too. So that was a kick. Yeah. I love Three Dog Night. That was my first band, actually, that uh, I ever remember seeing on television. And it kind of blew me away to see how, because uh, we had just gotten a television. And so it was really interesting for me to see people actually playing instruments, making music on television. It blew me away. I was just a little kid, but that's where it all started, you know, with me that that um, I was anxious. You know, I was really, it drove me. It, something, it, something about that performance, I can't remember what show, I think it was like, uh, a New Year's Eve special or something, but man, I that locked me in. It really did. 
I think one of the first records I ever had, I think, was Three Dog Night Live, you know? Yeah, yeah celebrate. Yeah. <laughs> Answer the music, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. So it's funny because, you know, I mean, people who don't know, they might not guess that a band like that would be such a big influence. But, you know, yeah. there you go. But, yeah. you know, they combined a lot of styles themselves. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and then you also mentioned uh, Let's Do It Again as a track that helped you learn. And that was one of the first 45s I ever bought by the Staple Singers. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's interesting about that song is I didn't even know. I learned of that song because of the movie, Let's Do It Again. Uh, I, I believe, wasn't it, Sidney Portier and uh, Bill, Cros Bill Cosby and uh can't remember who else was in that. But, man, that was a funny movie. And I just remember that bass line stuck to me. That doom, 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 doom. And then when I, I had the opportunity to meet Mava uh, this past uh, February, that was awesome. I even started playing the song for her on, on stage. You got to <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, I want to say you got those stars right. I was thinking maybe um, Jimmy Walker was in that. I'm not sure if that was the one or not. But yeah. yeah. A long time ago. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, like 75, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, another thing that really struck a nerve for me was, you know, you talked about growing up uh, on the more serious side, you know, without a real, like, father figure and how that sort of shaped you in your teen years. And, you know, I had the same kind of thing because my father was there, but he wasn't really all there. And I didn't really have anyone to, like, you know, show me how to be a man and how to, like, you know talk to girls and all that kind of stuff, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. get it. <laughs> I lived it. It was rough learning from the streets, you know. You walk in the streets and the streets start to teach you, you don't know what you're getting, you know. And then, you know, you just pick up whatever your peers are doing, whatever foolishness that might be, and you just run with it. That's it. Yeah. I, I remember... Uh, being told the craziest things when I was a kid, you know, um, but I never had parents or I or never had a father really set me straight on it. So I, I just believe whatever I would hear, you know, and run with it. You know. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's definitely gotten me in some questionable positions uh, in life, but you know, you learn the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> I was floored when I saw and read that you hadn't really gotten serious about the bass until high school. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that's that interesting because you know I I started out wanting to guitar, but because I broke the strings on it, I only had four strings. I mean, it took me long enough to buy the guitar, let alone trying to figure out how to put strings on it. And so um, Jermaine Jackson played four strings so i mean that's it was a no-brainer to me okay i'm gonna learn how to play that way with just the four strings and um so i was really learning how to play bass because the fundamentals of the you know how you play it it for me it was just four strings i you know six strings didn't register anymore because everything was four strings for me for you know for a good couple of years and then when I put it away, uh, when I got in high school and I picked it up, see, it was like automatic. I saw a real bass 
and I picked it up and it was so natural for me because when I was younger, that's how I started. So it was interesting how I ended up playing bass. It is interesting. Uh, I found it fascinating. It's almost like um, meant to be kind of in a way. Yeah. You know? yeah. You're going to play bass? It doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> Taking these two strings away, you're learning the bass. So that's yeah. kind of how. And, um, and then you mentioned, you know, a lot of my heroes as your heroes, but why don't you just go ahead and, and state them for everybody? Bass player heroes? Yeah, so, yeah. Man, there's a lot of them, but uh, just to name a few from that time period, because like nowadays, I mean, I have there's tons of bass players that I just love to play. But back then, yeah, definitely Stanley Clark, Jaco Pastores, you know, uh, Verdine White, Murph Wind and Fire, you know, Mr. Marks from uh, Slave, you know, these, these were some of my favorite bass players ever. Um, gosh, I uh, can't remember what was the uh, the group Pleasure. Can't remember the Nate Nate Phillips. Yeah. Oh man, that dude bad too you know so glide yeah that glide riff yeah yeah Yeah. and the list goes on you know but those are all larry graham i can't forget larry and bootsy wait a minute bootsy was a huge influence for me so and so was larry graham that sliding family stone that whole you know i grew up in that whole time period listening to that funk and the way he would rumble on the bottom so where a lot of my style came from right there Mm mm-hmm I mean, yeah, you. I feel like we were both blessed to come up during that time, you know, and when those guys were just starting to do their thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, in the book, you talk about how you first uh, met Prince and um, sort of uh, just a chance encounter, right? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I had heard a lot about him, uh, you know, because, you know, he was the talk of the town. Everybody this guy from Central High School, he goes to North. Now, this guy from North High School, you know, he, he plays all the instruments and he has this album out. He's just this and that. And so, you know, the talk was already around town about him. I remember him, but I didn't put it, I didn't put connect the dots. I remember they played uh, a high school prom at Central and I was in the alleyway and I'll never forget Whoever was on that stage, it was funky. And I was outside. I, you know, I was a kid. I couldn't even get in. But um, I, w- I sat outside that back door in the alleyway, and I listened to them. And, man, they, they were funky. And so when I met him, I was in a pancake. I was uh, working my way up from a dishwasher to a cook, you know. And uh, he was dating Kim Upshur, who was, a at the time, a waitress. And uh, I remember he walked in the door and she ran back and she said, uh, she was all excited. And she told me, you know, hey, you got to make this order special. There's somebody special out there. And, you know, so I'm like, special? Oh, I want to see who this is. And so the obnoxious little kid I was, I'm like jumping all over the counters trying to see who it was. And I'm staring at him and making him uncomfortable. But, hey, I, you know, I cooked him pancakes. That, that was the highlight, you know, of my childhood to be able to make pancakes for this dude, especially looking back, realizing that pancakes were a big part of, you know, his story you know, and, and many stories that were told about him. So, 
<laughs> I got to cook it for him. So. <laughs> Uh, at, at that point, Mark, did he have uh, the Warner Brothers deal already and any records out? Or yeah, yeah. That see, that's when um, Soft and Wet was out. See, that's when I I had first heard about him, and um, Soft and Wet came out, and you know, I remember the song. I, I was driving down. I was driving at a very young age, but <laughs> remember driving down the street, and I heard what was it? It was. Uh, in love and uh on the radio kmoj and i i was blown away i said there's no way that this dude play all these instruments no way and so that's when i started really getting into prince you know trying to figure out what he was and what he was doing and then as i progressed as i got older i started trying to follow his footsteps and do the same things that he did um I started working out of a studio in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and taking all my earnings and I would spend it on the studio and work in this guy's basement. And so I was trying to follow the same path. So, yeah, but, but man, he had the album out. He had to deal with Warner Brothers already at that time. Did you sense that, you know, there were a lot of guys just like you that were kind of inspired by him already locally and trying to kind of follow that path? I mean, not really. I mean, all of us were trying to make it. That that was the term, you know. I'm gonna make it one day. What does that mean? You know, I, we I, not many of us had a clue really what making it was. We just knew we wanted to produce records, put them out so people could hear them. So um, going in the studio was the first step. Prince was so far in front of us. He was really far in front of me because you know I'm three and a half maybe four years younger so you know i was like one of the last of my generation of the minneapolis sound to really um be in a band and play that live music after me there were very few you know like the mint conditions and you know grand jury there were a, a couple other groups but as far as individual players you know i was kind of one of the youngest of a bunch one of the last of the group of musicians that came uh, came up in that time. They took music out of schools and things changed after that. So, you know, I, I felt very privileged that I was even a part of the tail end of that. But I clung on for dear life and I followed all those guys, Sonny Thompson, Andre Simone Prince, uh, and uh, Rocky Garrity. I mean, I could, I could name, I could keep going. I, there were so many awesome musicians back then, you know? And so um, I feel privileged that I got to come up in a time period when these guys were at their their best. Absolutely. And when you mentioned three and a half years difference between you and Prince, in Prince years, that's like 10 years, you know? It's yeah. like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was very advanced, very yeah. advanced. I mean, to even know how to go in the studio and... Um, get the drum sounds. I mean, heck, that cost me, you know, a few thousand dollars just to learn how to do that. I mean, so, <laughs> you know, it was, you know, one one song at a time in the studio for me where he had the ability to go in there, you know, I mean, he had met Owen Husney at the time. And I think there might even been, I think Peppy Willie had something to do with, I don't really know the story, but um, I know he had really good people that got behind him when he was younger 
and kind of, um, you know, pulled him in and showed him a lot of ropes, especially Owen Husney had a big, uh, a big, you know, hand in how Prince developed in the studio. I know that for sure, uh, just by hearing the stories. And I had the privilege of meeting Owen Husney later in the years, and he helped me a lot uh, mm -hmm. with um, my songwriting and then with my band Maserati. So, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of good people in Minnesota uh, ready and willing to help, you know, us musicians out, you know, a small group of us. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was just thinking Minneapolis versus Atlanta, you know, it's a big uh, chasm in terms of, of weather right there. Uh, are, how long have you been out of Minneapolis? Oh, I think I left Minneapolis in 19, yeah, 1996 or 97. Wow, Somewhere. so yeah. quite a while. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, you talk about how uh, you got a, a very uh, special phone call at one point, uh, sort of like the, uh, the call of destiny, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was at, we were playing at the Way Community Center, rehearsing. Well, I I called it practice. The prince, he, he stripped me from ever saying, using that word ever again. He said, that, that word is stricken. You cannot use that word around me. We don't practice, we rehearse. And, uh, but back then I was practicing at the Way Community Center, because uh, I was an amateur and, uh, about 11, 12 o'clock in the morning, we got that phone call that, you know, the janitor knocked on the door and said, there's a, there's a call for Mark Brown. And, you know, the whole band's looking at me like, what the heck, you know, because nobody knew we were there. You know, we're at hours, we weren't even supposed to be in that place. And um, we're working out in the warehouse because our lead singer was one of the program uh, or, you know, he worked there. He worked at the community center. He was one of the directors or something. And so, you know, we kind of had a free place to rehearse, but no one knew we were there. It was impossible. And so um, got that phone call. I walked down the hallway, picked up the phone, and I said, you know, I was like, you know, who is this? You know, <laughs> he's like, uh, this is Prince. I was like, you're saying no Prince. Boom, I hung the phone <laughs> Ain't no Prince, what a liar. And he called right back. And I turned around, I looked at the phone, and I was just thinking to myself, this is like some crazy prank, or that really is him. And I picked the phone back up, and he's like, don't hang up. Don't hang up. This, this is Prince. And, you know, and I was just sitting there in, in disbelief, you know, because I was like, wow. So th this is really Prince. And he said, yeah, I want you to audition for my band. And then I was really blown away. I was like, what? Because I'm thinking, you know, I'm an amateur. I mean, you got bass players that could smoke me. You know, Sonny Thompson alone. I mean, Sonny taught me and Prince. So I mean, I'm like, I'm like hmm. I shouldn't say Sonny taught Prince, but I know he taught him a lot. You know, uh, Sonny taught a lot of people in Minneapolis. But um, it was really interesting. I went back. And I told the band, um, well, I was trying to hide it from them. And, you know, they were like, well, who would be calling you this late? And I just, I didn't want to say anything. And they kept pressuring me. 
so finally I said, you know, that, that was Prince. And I mean, it was so quiet. You could just, everybody was in such disbelief when, when I told them that. And, you know, the, the rest is in the book. You know, uh, I don't want to give it all away, but um, yeah, it, it stirred up a little, a little tension, you know, um, but life goes on, you know, it was an opportunity for me. I was going to take it. He had said he was going to pick me up. That Bobby Z picked me up at the 7-Eleven. That's, that's where I had worked at the time at the uh, little convenience store. I was like, how does he even know I worked at 7-Eleven? You know, even that kind of blew me away because, I mean, nobody knew I worked at 7-Eleven. You know, I don't even think 7-Eleven knew I worked at 7-Eleven. And the spies or something. <laughs> exactly. So, and you, that, were, that, you were only 19, right? Yeah, I was 19 years old. I just turned 19. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. I was a young guy, man, and that, that kind of blew me away. Yeah. That's why I was just thinking, Mark, about how many times people have pro probably hung up on Prince, like thinking it was not real. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> there ain't no Prince. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you got the gig, you know, you, uh, well, I guess it seemed like he had been sort of like following you and keeping tabs on you a little bit from afar, you know, so. Yeah, I had heard that he had been watching me for a few months, several months. Um, and um, I remember me and Andre, I, I was talking to Andre because I knew Andre was, it was a toss up between me and this guy named Johnny and uh, to play in Andre's band because uh, Andre was, you know, had quit Prince, and so he was putting his own thing together. So that's who I'm thinking. I'm like, I'm going to end up playing with Andre, you know. And so when he called me, it it blew me away. It really did. Um, but I went out there, and I think that audition lasts, what, 50, no more than 15 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. And, I, you know, he had me learn, like, three albums, you know. And, it, oh, you know, how do you learn three albums that fast? And then, you know, you have to go into this audition, you know, and it was just the three of us, me, Bobby and Prince. And um, I, we didn't even go through half the songs. It was, it, you know, 10, minute, 10, 15 minutes tops and we were done. He looked at Bobby, said, I'll take him home. You know, I'm thinking to myself, you'll, you'll, you'll take me home. <laughs> now I'm nervous. I'm like, what in the world is going on here? You know, why are you taking me home? I know Bobby now. I want to go with him. <laughs> and, oh, Bobby gets in the car, he takes off. I'm like, oh, man. And he disappears upstairs, and he's gone for a long time, you know, good 30 minutes. And he comes downstairs, and I was like, oh, man, okay. Let's see what he got up his sleeve. Comes down the steps, all dressed up. I mean, he was dressed up anyways. I, when, when he opened the door, he was dressed up, so now he's even more dressed up, right? He looks like a rock star even more than he did when he – let me in his house and and uh hair was coming all down here and he had black i mean he looked he looked totally rocked out and he said let's go for a ride and i'm just like wow okay this is weird get in his little bmw he had the biggest stereo system i mean i can't explain to you how loud the stereo system <laughs> I, the stereo system was bigger than the car <laughs> We got in this thing and he turned it on and it was so loud. It had subwoofers. Now I ain't never seen none of this kind of stuff before, nor heard it. 
and it, I was just blown away. And he started playing me the controversy album, the album that you know I was coming in on, and uh, he wanted to get my opinion and see how I like the stuff. And I just looked at him and I said, "Man, this this stuff is so different." But I, you know, I remember I told him, I said, "Man, this this stuff is gonna go straight up." It's going straight up, I said, because it's so different. I said, people are waiting for this. They're going to love this. And uh, I remember he told me that that was uh, the end of his contract. If he did, if this album didn't do well, you know, that was going to be it for him. Warner Brothers was going to drop him. That's what he told me. And uh, I was like, you ain't got to worry about it. This, this record right here, I said, this is going to hit, bro. And so... He drove me uh, back to my car at 7-Eleven and uh, said, job's yours. He said, just let me know Monday. I was like, I don't need to let you know Monday. I can let you know right now I'm in. He said, no, no. I want you to really think about this. Make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. You know, Bobby had said that to me earlier when he picked me up. He's like, you sure you know what you're getting yourself into? I'm like, what? I'm like, what do you mean? I'm a musician. Of course I know what I'm getting myself into. But then it, it kind of scared me because I was like, you know, there's something I don't know. And then uh, Prince says the same thing to me. So I was like kind of nervous, but I was like, okay, I'll let you know Monday, but I can tell you right now I'm in. Yeah, that, that's how I got it. <laughs> wow. You know, uh, probably something that you don't know is that I was uh, at that Coliseum Rolling Stones concert and uh, so I understand that was basically your first show and I had Lisa on the show and she told me then it was your first show and I didn't know it until she told me that and yeah. I was like oh my gosh I was there you know and it was unbelievable and it I was you know a, a Prince fan from Soft and Wet from the get-go and okay. um, I had told all my friends this guy's amazing. You got to check him yeah. out. So I was like this big, you know, promoter of Prince among my, you know, people. Yeah. And and at that show, they were there mainly for the Rolling Stones. But I was telling them, no, this guy opening, he's amazing. Wait till you see him. And then when he came out and what happened, I was mortified. And I was <laughs> so pissed off at what I had seen. But just give a, give a taste of, of what that was like for you, Mark. Um... It, it was scary, and then it wasn't scary. I mean, because I kind of knew. I mean, I played in little bar bands. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew what a rough crowd was like. But <clears throat> excuse me, the Rolling Stones. I, I played biker bars before, so I was like, man, this audience is going to be rough. I've heard about the Rolling Stones audience, and uh, so I was nervous going in a little bit. Uh, with the type of music we're playing and what I know is typical of a Rolling Stones concert. So uh, I remember we, we went through this like field of white tents. I never seen anything like it, white tents everywhere. And we're walking and we went to our tent and you know, I remember we were sitting around waiting uh, to go on, and, you know, people getting makeup and hair and whatever, all that stuff they were doing. And I was just sitting there, you know, Felt like I was sucking my thumb, like, mama. Because <laughs> I was new to the game, and uh, it was our time, and we walked down this flight of steps. I mean, it was like this huge flight. Of steps. It was almost like we were going to the Roman games, you know. 
we were, we were going to the slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> and you could hear the roar of the crowd was so loud. I had never seen that many people in one one area. It was uh, festival seating, so there was no seats. Everybody was standing. You know, you, you were there. It looked like just they were in there like cattle, just packed like in 90, there. 90,000, yeah. 90 plus, yeah. And I was like, my God, this is ridiculous. And I remember we started playing. And uh, it, it was good, you know. Rob was like screaming. and it was, it was good. But somewhere in that set, it was a turning point. And uh, I remember he came to me because there was two days of it. So it, my, my memories kind of, I kind of meshed both days together because I don't really remember. But I remember he came, walked over to me and he said, we're going to change the song and we're going to play Jack You Off. I was like, ah. I was like, no. That one surprised me too. <laughs> can't play Jack You Off. At, I said, no. And he walked off and I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. It was already tense and then uh you know bobby starts with the drums and then he starts talking to the audience and he says this is what you do to your girl in a drive-in movie i was like no i was like no no you don't do that to your girl girls do that to the guys so i knew right then i was like oh this is gonna be really bad man i'm sure you know the rest they would throw up jack daniel bottles i got hit with a bag of chicken uh, my bass got hit with a grapefruit. I was dodging cans and bras, <laughs> shoes. You know, I mean, it got really bad. And uh, when he got hit upside the head with a metal object, it looked like a to me like a silver dollar or something. But I remember when it hit him upside the head, that was it. He was through, and he he just left the stage. And I was like, oh man, I was like, what do I do? <laughs> And then everybody was leaving, and so I just followed suit. You know, that that was one weird day. And, you know, I felt like he even tried, I mean, that song was questionable, but I felt like he tried to cater to that crowd because he did, like, do, like, some Jimi Hendrix kind of, like, guitar stuff. Yeah. And yeah. I was like, well, maybe, you know, I think he's trying to connect with them through maybe the Hendrix thread. Um, yeah. Yeah. But they weren't having it. No, they weren't. <laughs> I heard audio from the soundboard. Um Years later, we were playing uh, Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad, and it was that intro. And I remember the soundboard, the engineers like, oh, God, we got to do We got to deal with another one. Here we go. I can't wait till he gets this crap. You know, this crap is you know, over with out of here. So nobody liked us, not even the engineers. I was like, this is pretty bad. Wow. Yeah, Mick Jagger was the uh, fan, but. Yeah. yeah, it didn't make the translation, unfortunately. But, yeah. you know, I was, um, I'm sure you felt the same way, you know, but I felt so um, avenged, if you will, when um, it wasn't much later, it was just months later when I saw uh, you guys at the um, Santa Monica Civic as part of the Controversy Tour. And that show was such a victory, you know, yeah. so close to where that travesty had happened. <laughs> and that was a just an awesome show you know yeah isn't it weird like 360 man it was a full turnaround night and day man it's like uh and he said that to me i remember uh he was really embarrassed and he was really nervous as how as to how i was going to respond to what had just happened 
I'm the new guy, first show. And in his mind, he doesn't realize how famous he is. So he's looking at me and he's like nervous that I'm going to quit or something. I'm like, dude, you're you're a superstar. You can get anybody to replace me if I walk away from this, you know. But you could, you know, I could feel the nervousness in him when he approached me because he was like, uh, you know, how are you feeling? And, you know, I, I don't, I, that is not our crowd. And he just went through this whole, you know, ex, you know, explanation of how different it is to play in front of a Prince audience. And I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew he was doing a lot of explaining to me. Uh, making a lot of excuses for what had just happened. And, you know, what he doesn't understand is I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> you know, I was in there. I was a soldier at that point. I was in there for the long haul. And so, um, you know, he told me that uh, a little bit after that, that our first show is going to be in Pittsburgh. And uh, he says, you're going to see who our audience is. And yeah, I, I saw it all right. Pittsburgh, that was that stadium. I mean, uh, that theater, that was an amazing gig for me. Yeah. I, I, that was the first time I got real fan interaction. Um, I got to actually touch fans, you know, and slap their hands. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I was like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, I, I, I tapped this one girl on the hand. They, they were hauling her out. She <laughs> packed out. They hauled her out. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This yeah. is oh this this is crazy, you know. Wrecked her, I wrecked her show. <laughs> you know, but, how how, how um, challenging was it for you to you know learn parts like for like let's work and some of that material and you know I love in the book how you talk about um, at the at the um, rehearsal not practice when uh, Prince kind of kicked you in the ass and and from that point on you kind of knew how you had to proceed yeah. yeah more than once it, it was uh, we, we were rehearsing we came back from the stone show because we had not worked on a print show uh, I just learned certain songs for that Rolling Stones so now we were going into rehearsal for tour uh, for the controversy tour and um, so I learned songs the way I always learned them. You know, you just kind of listen to the record and you're like, oh, okay, I got it. You know, no, no brainer. Um, I, I hear, I play by ear and I pick up really quickly. And so I went to the rehearsal and we were going through some songs and I, I can't remember. I think we were working on, we were playing Head or Let's Work. It was one of them. And I remember he just, you know, made a roundabout. He was coming up from behind me. I didn't know where he was. I wasn't thinking anything else. I'm like always looking down at my face, make sure I'm playing the right thing. And all of a sudden, I feel this this thing right in my rear end. <laughs> he took that pointed boot, bam, kicked me so hard. I remember I was like, oh. And I turned around. I was like, what was that? And I turned around, and he was walking that way. So I'm turning around trying to figure out what just happened. And I was like, I know this dude didn't just kick me. I remember I was just like, did he just? No, no. You, you, your mind's trying to dismiss it because it's like, that's impossible. This dude did not just, this dude is 5'2", I'm 6 feet tall. 
And I was no little guy. I was like, he, there's no way in the world would he kick me and not know that I wouldn't just take the base off and start scrapping with him right there, you know. And so he went, kept going around, went back to his mic, and I just kept playing. You know, I never stopped playing. And uh, he made a round again. Bam! And I was like, oh! <laughs> hit me again. And, you know, you get hit down there, you know, the first thing you want to do is drop to the floor because that, that hurts. But he kicked me right in the butt. He did not kick me underneath to where if he, if he would have hit the, the, the sack, the scrotum, I would have probably hit the floor and been laid out. Because as hard as he kicked me, that would have been painful. But he kicked me like right in the butt, you know, right, right up in there, right in that crack. And uh, I just remember the pain. And I was like, this dude just kicked me. At that point, I, I wanted to fight because it was first instinct. You hit, I hit back. First instinct was to fight. But he came up and he grabbed me by the ear like this. Let me see, what ear was it? It was this ear. He grabbed me by the ear really hard. Like, he's, he's handling me like a rag doll. He grabs me by the ear, you know, and he starts cursing in my ear. And he tells me to play the bass or I'll find somebody who will. And I remember, and then he walked off and I remember, I'm, I'm going to beat you You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm in such shock. And I'm like, I'm getting ready to beat up Prince, you know. And something in me just, uh, this calm comes on me. It was the end of rehearsal. It was the end. Because, you know, I was pretty much done after that. And I remember I went home angry. I was really angry. And I told my mother what happened. And I remember my mom, she, in disbelief, she was just like shaking her head. And um, But she got a grip on it really quickly. And she said, He's trying to, he's trying to break. He's trying to um, find a way to, to to break you from whatever it is you are. And um, she said that's the only thing it could have been. And I remember, I, I thought long and hard about that conversation she had with me. And I said, what What does that mean? You know. And I, I started re-listening to the records. You know, or to the, the tapes that I had of the music, and I went back to the drawing board, and I said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna really figure out how to uh, play this stuff like him, so that's not an excuse." Because I knew it was all about the playing. I played every song identical to the record. I mean, I copied it identically. I went there to the rehearsal the next day, and I played. And he turned around and he said, that's what I'm talking about. He said that on the microphone. He said, no, that's what I'm talking about. And I was like, wow. Was like, dude, you almost got killed. I mean, you could have just walked up to me and said, yeah, look, I need you to get out of your old head and play this stuff the way it's supposed to be played. But I, I had learned a valuable lesson that he was actually trying to break me from my old habits and in with the new so that he could teach me. He had to break me down to, you know, strip me of my identity so that he could start to rebuild me into something that he he saw me to be. And I mean, Brown Mark, that whole image, that whole character came from Prince. 
my style, everything I learned because he broke me down. When he, when he stripped me down to nothing, I had nothing to do but rebuild, relearn, and, and develop my own character. It's not like he had one-on-one -on -one bass lessons with me and said, this is how you do it. No, he, he wanted me to come into my own, but he wanted me to get rid of my own method of doing it. And so uh, I remember a fan said to me just recently that you should, um, shouldn't use that name Brown Mark anymore because um, it was derogatory and he was he knew what he was doing he was belittling you when he called you that and i was like no he didn't see i, I one thing that i know for a certainty is he christened me with a new name because i was a new person see that's where that came from because i didn't get called brown mark for a good six months in you know it, it i had to earn that name and then when uh, everybody had a nickname and that was the nickname that he gave me and it was because I was now developing into this character that he wanted and that he was building. I mean, the dude was a genius. He's very smart, um, even with how he, he, you know, controlled his band. I mean, I don't knock him for nothing. I, you know, I can say me and him got mad a lot. We fought a lot verbally. Um, he almost got beat up a lot because <laughs> there's some other stories that, that were pretty bad. But the bottom line was I, it was my choice if I wanted to stay in that. I had every right to leave at any time. Nobody was making me stay there. Nobody said, you know, that uh, you have to sit here and take it. Mm -hmm. I wanted it that badly. I was on a wave of success. This dude was on his way up. I would have been a fool to walk away from that and that's why to this day I never uh, look back on that whole time period and a lot of the stuff that happened to me I don't look back on negative I look back on it as a learning experience because it made me who I am in life today you know I'm a much better person because of it absolutely um, and when you talk about on that path you know, that uh, controversy show that I mentioned, Santa Monica Civic, then seeing the next one, the 1999 tour that was at Long Beach Arena with the time and vanity, yeah. which was the full show. And that was incredible to see all three acts on one bill, you know, yeah. before he didn't want the time there anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, That's a story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then from there to go to the Purple Rain tour at the LA Forum, you know, so following this whole trajectory of just bigger and bigger and bigger uh, was just incredible. Um, yeah. And I felt like I was like part of that ride because I had just followed it from the beginning, you know. So, um, yeah. but, you know, to actually be in that whirlwind like you were, um, you know, is there any um, stories related to the 1999 or Purple Rain tours that you want to just share? Oh, I mean, you know, there, there's a zillion stories. I, I, matter of fact, I have another book I'm working on uh, right now. It's called After the Rain. Um, and in that book, I'm touching on more um, detailed stories about, because there's so many, you know, you can't put them in one book. This book was like a foundation to let people know who I was because I was always in the shadows. Um, and that's what I wanted this book to, um, you know, to uh, share. I wanted to share with people 
of where I came from and why and how. Uh, this next one is going to talk more about those stories, but it, during the 1999 tour was a, a turning point for me because that's when I really found my true identity. I found out who Brown Mark really was. And, uh, you know, after that point, I started carrying myself with it. a little arrogance, you know, but I learned, you know, I learned how to be a rock star. And uh, Prince taught me well. I, I, I give it to him. I don't. I don't give myself the credit for that. I give it to him because he really, he beat my behind. I mean, he showed me what it took to be that person. And it took a lot of hard work, a lot of dedication. And I actually became that person. And, uh, so, you know, one story I share in the book is when that, that day, that awakening, that day of reckoning, when I was sitting, I was depressed. I was sitting in a hotel room getting ready for the show tonight. We were in, I believe, uh, we were in Michigan. I can't remember which city, like Upsilani or one of those small cities. And we were getting ready to gig that night. And, and my hair was just, I mean, I looked like something that just walked out of it. I looked like Don King. That's what I looked like. You know, my hair was just, because I didn't know Nobody ever showed me what to do with it. You know, he took me to the hairdresser and they stripped all my curls out. And that was it. And never showed me anything else. And so um, that day I was sitting in front of the mirror and I was so broken. And, you know, because my identity was just, I couldn't figure out. I had, I started to figure out how to play and how to act, but I didn't know how to look. And I didn't have that look. And I remember I bought, I went to Walgreens and I bought this, it was a, called a nine millimeter curling iron. It was a really skinny curling iron. And I bought it and I remember I sat up there for three hours, one strand at a time. I curled my entire head and it looked like Shirley Temple. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like that first picture I showed on the cover, right? Which one? The cover shot. Oh, right? oh no! This is that. That's when I had it together. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. But even before then, it was like it was longer than that. But it was really, um, it was completely straight. So I had to figure out how to curl it, and I curled it, and it just they fell. The curls just dropped, and I was like, "Oh man, this is a disaster. This is horrible." And so I, you know, ran my hands through my hair like this, and I was out of anger. And then I remember I looked up and it was a curly afro. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I like that. That's kind of cool. Put my sunglasses on. I was like, oh, 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 I was like, this is it. I remember I went to the, the gig and I remember he looked over at me and he went, okay. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, I, no counsel, no nothing. But I think he finally started to notice I'm coming into my own now, see? And the whole time, he was kind of just waiting for me to do that. He was waiting for me to develop. And, uh, you know, I got to tip my hat to him. He didn't want a clone. He wanted Brown Mark. He wanted me to find myself. And I did. So ever since then, like on the book cover, that's how I started wearing my hair. Well, and that was one of the charms of the revolution was just how varied, you know, the whole band was. Yeah. 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 
and diverse. Um, is there a particular track that you used to play, or maybe, and you and you have uh, done nowadays with the re reuniting of the Revolution for those shows? That is the most challenging for a particular reason on the bass. Nothing's challenging. I mean, for me, the kind of bass player I am, I'm a very rhythmic player. Um, um, I'm not technical. Like, you know, I can't do all the scales and runs and all that. I'm, I've never been that kind of bass player. I'm a groove player. I play by, I feel what I'm doing. And um, it's that so, rumble, that rumble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that's my feel, you know. And, and so, um, um all the songs to me are really easy because mm -hmm. it's it's brown style you know prince gave me my freedom he, that's one thing i i really liked is he never came and took my bass and showed me a bass part it, 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 that just did not happen um he was always looking at me to see what i was going to throw at him because he liked the way i did bass and drums you know um I'm, I'm a drummer first. That was my first instrument. And, and you know, became a bass player. And um, so he liked the way I put bass and drum together. So never, I didn't have that problem. And so whenever, when the revolution got back together, uh, it was so easy for me to just go back to what I was. And I'm even more skilled, I, you know, my skills through the years have developed and you know you don't forget i actually got better at what i do and um so it got to a point where now um the revolution came back together it, it became fun it was really fun creating even more rumble on the bottom uh, it was to a point where when we first started gigging i remember bobby z and wendy used to have a fit and they'd be like, "Oh my God, there's too much bass. Can, can we can we do something about the bass? Because I I would I had subs, I had everything. My junk was so loud that the PA could be off in the front, and you'd still hear me coming through the audience. And uh, and so I, I used to laugh about that. But uh, yeah, they used to complain about how loud and, and that." that rumble on the bottom. And so we, we, we did a compromise. I, I turned it down a little bit. <laughs> one yeah, notch. Have, we'll turn it down one notch. Yeah, one notch. <laughs> you know, I, I made it tolerable for them. 